Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host Kirsten Nuss, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the grit that it takes to get to the top of your game, whether that's in photography, business, or in life in general. There's nobody better to ask than a U.S. Navy SEAL. So buckle up, grip a cold one, and let's shake it up with today's award-winning guest right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 142. And in this episode, of course, as always, we have a special guest. Give it up for the U.S. Navy SEAL award-winning photographer, ambassador, author, and motivate, motivational speaker, difficult word for me to say on a, on a Tuesday evening. <laughs> and the only person I know who has a bronze star, has a photograph hanging in the White House, and most likely the only SEAL to hate swimming, give it up for Darren McBurnett. Darren, man, how are you? Oh, good, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on, man. And congratulations on the enormity of your podcast and the success, man. That's, uh, that's pretty freaking cool. So, yeah, honored to be here. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks very much. Man. Thanks, thanks for coming. It's uh, we've been talking for a little while. It's, it's just it's a great honor to have you on the show. Um, I, the first time this is actually this is a funny thing. So, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Pam uh, Pam Sugenborg, uh, either talked to me about you, and then when I saw some of the images, I went, "Hang on, I've seen these images before," <laughs> like because they're <laughs> so striking that uh, that you know, I mean, obviously, when you come across these these images, you just have to stop. And and look and uh, I you know I remember looking at those images thinking like how the hell like how do you even how do you even do this thing? <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's start let's just start with your background a little bit. So obviously, so I've mentioned it before. You're a U.S. Navy SEAL. You've been in the service for 24 years. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 20, uh, 24 years total. 22 in the SEAL teams. So. It was a, a a long journey, but it was uh, is definitely interesting and fun. Uh, definitely busy, put it that way. So uh, yeah, man, that's uh, that was my life. So yeah, was, now we're just you know doing a lot of things actually. So uh, yeah, and cool like this. It's it's amazing, you know, just looking at your career. I mean, first of all, you're spending 24 years um, in in the Navy SEALs. That in itself is incredible, incredible achievement, especially. If you think back over the last twenty-four years, I mean, that's it's been it, like you said, it's a, it was a busy time. How did you how did you first get into the yeah. into the SEAL team, and like, what made you so? What made you decide that you wanted to go into the SEALs? Well, uh, that is a great question. Um, well, <laughs> I the, the best way I can say it is, I think I was self bamboozled. Is uh, how I can really that lightly because um i didn't really know anything about the seal teams i just heard like the very first time i ever heard anything about a navy seal I, I didn't put two and two together so my father was in the military and when i was in high school i did triathlons all the time i was like triathlon marathons uh road races so i was a very athletic high school kid and that's all I did. And then one day my dad said, well, the Navy has Navy SEALs and they're the ones that started the first Ironman in Hawaii. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. That was the, that, and that was the end of the conversation, like junior in high school. And I never even heard the term again. 
Uh, and then I got in the Navy. Uh, I just got went to the Navy after college. That was, I was going to do four years because all my family members with my dad and my grandparents on my uh, mom and dad's side, uh, including my grandmother, all served in World War II. My grandmother was a nurse in World War II. My dad was in Vietnam. And I was just going to do, you know, like a st couple stints and then get out because, you know, I want to serve my country and then do what the rest of my family members have done. And then, uh, uh, like I said, joined in, I ended up being a medic or a corpsman. Um, and then, uh, from there I had really good, really high PT scores. So in the Navy, it's called the, uh, physical readiness tests. And you have to score like certain amount of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, swim and run. And the higher, like the lower the times or the higher the numbers, the more, uh, higher up you, you get like outstanding high or extending medium things like that. And I always got outstandings on them. So finally it was uh, time for me to go to another duty station because I was at the hospital in San Diego for a while learning my, my new skill set. And I didn't really know, and I didn't know what they were. So this is the best way I could try to describe it. I didn't know what it was. I saw the dive bell. I saw the, the name seals on us. But what I thought I was doing was, um, I know the Navy had a dolphin program. So where you can scuba dive like dive and you dove with the dolphins and like the dolphin program was to dolphins went down and pinged, you know, uh, underwater craft and, and boats and things like that. So I took the word seal and associated it with the dolphin program is what I did, you know? And then of course I asked, uh, what exactly do seals do, you know? And he just said they swim all day in a scuba dive. And in my mind, I was going to be swimming in a pool, scuba diving and swimming and training dolphins. So that's what I thought I was going to do. So if you could figure me out showing up to SEAL training and that was my mindset, that's what we were going to do. And then it was, uh, <laughs> it was, even while I was there, it just up and said UDT SEAL instructor on their t-shirts. And I had no idea. It's like, what the hell is this? You know, I don't see any dolphin cages. I don't see any, you know, my snorkeling pool. Yeah, like nothing. It was just misery around the gate. So, and then once, once you realized it wasn't going to be swimming with dolphins, you decided to stay. That's even more remarkable. Yeah, because everyone kept saying that I wasn't going to make it. That was a big thing. It was uh, a lot of negative. I don't know. People, humans are weird in that way. Once they find out you're doing something, the first thing is like, well, you're not going to make it. That was number one. Number two, the instructor staff is there are every day telling you're going to quit and not going to make it. You know, and so after a while. It just turned into everyone's telling me they're not going to make it. And every day, about five to eight people quit a day or more. Like when you first started still training, even in like basic orientation, we lost like 30 or 40 people. You know, we need to start first day, day one of, of day one of still training, one, one day, lost 27 first day. And they're like, all we did was a morning PT. We hit the surf, did surf conditioning for about 40 minutes, ran to chow came back, had IBS surf passage until lunch, went to lunch, and then we were in the pool in the afternoon practicing like 50 meter underwater swimming, swimming. So the first day, literally, as me as an athlete, was not very, it wasn't anything that any person with any athletic prowess couldn't do, except you're cold as fuck. That's about it. You're in the, you're in the Atlantic Ocean, it's 52 degrees, you lie in there still, and when it's the ocean's moving, it takes all your body heat out, it just sucks it all out of you, and so now you're just jackhammer shivering. You know, and that's people just got cold, you know, and that was it. And it's like, well, I've been cold before. I swam oceans before and I knew they weren't allowed to kill us. At least that's what I thought. And, uh, um, and then eventually in your head, like the vet, 
the evolution is going to be over because they have to feed you three times a day, period. So lunch, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And in between there is four hours when I'm at 8 and 12. Yeah, and in between all that is like three hours. And I, you're going to do two evolutions. And so with that, each evolution is going to be maybe an hour. So it's not, whenever happens in there, it's not going to be that bad because you have to keep transitioning to the next evolution. So you do this one, transition to the next one, go get your dive gear on, go get your boats, whatever, whatever. And then the other half is going to be at the pool doing pool stuff, which was my forte. So I didn't care. So once I got to the pool, to me, it was a day off, you know, because that was all the stuff I could do and I didn't have to worry about it, you know? So, you know, that's kind of like how you got through the days because they weren't really that bad, but you know, lots of people quit lots, you know, and people just kept telling me I couldn't do it. You're going to quit. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to stay in here just because you're telling me that I can't. <laughs> yeah, if I mean, it really is a mind over matter type of a thing. It's just really down to the mindset, really, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, it's your mindset. You got to choose to do it. You know, that's the thing. It's like once you make that choice, then you just go, you know, and you just deal with it. You know, it's like how you deal with that is totally up to you. You know, um, I, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's hard to get into the head, the mindset, kind of know what you're doing, but the biggest obstacle is is the cold number one and number two why most people quit seal training is because the the environment changes so what people understand is is people are are creatures of habit by default you know every day they like they like everything to do they like to have it number one and they like everything in order you know uh because it's comfortable you know it's people human beings like being comfortable and so when they start being uncomfortable and things go out of sequence out of order in their minds that's when they really start to embrace misery and self-loathing. So it give for instance, um, in first phase, well, all phases, but in first phase, you got to do, there's test gates, four mile timed run in boots and your, uh, uh, your pant bottoms and your blouse shirt. And usually you're wet. So your boots weigh about five pounds a piece with sand and everything else. Uh, you had to do the old course in 13 minutes, two mile ocean swims in 72 minutes and below. Uh, plus you had to pass like drown proofing, life saving, uh, 50 meter on water swim. Um, in the first phase, you have to, you have to pass those test gates. So a big, for instance, would be a four mile time run that you have to do. So when people are training for, 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 for buds and seal training in their heads, it says, you just got to do a four mile time run right in boots or four mile time or two mile ocean something like that so with their heads they'll just go out there and run on the roads or they're running the treadmill i just ran four miles or in i ran on the roads and things like that that's that's what they think four miles is and that's how they train like or they'll train in the gym or they'll do all their the core exercises in the gym and then hit the pool you know that has lap lanes and everything else so it's a controlled environment that they are controlling okay does that make sense so when you're sure. controlling your own destiny, controlling your own exercise, controlling your own level of, of pain and discomfort, then you could turn it off. You could turn it on and off whenever you want to. When you get to SEAL training, the problem is you can't turn it off and the environment changes. So an example is a four mile time run. Again, you got to run on the beach. Now, some people never ran on a beach before. So now they're sinking three inches in soft sand or even more. So if the tide is out, then you got flat running surface, which is like a road, but it's still, you know, 
uh, it's still uncomfortable, but it's a road. And now you're com- now you're covering the road. You're, you're still splashing the water, but the tide's up. When the tide's in, now you're running on the soft soft sand, which you're sinking about six to eight inches into the sand, trying to do this four mile time run. You know, in the back of your heads are like, hey, this is a four mile time run. This is hey, we need. How come we're doing it down here on the beach? And it's like that's the whole point. You know, you can't control the environment that you're going in. You can't control the elements, but you still have to perform. You still have to meet standard no matter what. And then that's that was when people really started to to go away because the environment changed. They couldn't handle the fact that that in their heads they're running four miles in 32 minutes, but yet they didn't expect it's going to be either on soft sand or the or the tides all the way in. You got a berm, and now you're just running. Every time a wave comes in, you're running in the water. The wave goes out. And then you're running uh, and, and trying to make the times. And so that's one of the biggest increase. That's one of the biggest reasons why people fail that. It, it, now, even when they get to the pool, the pool evolutions, you know, the pool's freezing. Now they keep it like literally like almost ice cold for a reason. Because once you jump in cold water, what happens? It takes your breath away. You know, you jump up in a normal pool and you start swimming, you know, 500,000 or a mile or two miles or three miles. It's a comfort nice pool at probably temperature at 68 degrees or 70 degrees and it's warm you know you control your own pace you know it's comfort it's elevated it's it's uh nice temperature for you and so you can swim all day on that now just get into the open ocean splash in and the, and the ocean's 48 degrees now what or you get in the pool that was out there and it's like 54 it's freaking freezing it takes your breath away and now you got to perform all these tasks underwater while you're bring up brain freeze you know <laughs> Now you got to perform and then actually swim. And so when the environment changes, you know, uh, you start losing a lot of people because they can't, they can't accept that they're not, they're not being, they have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And most people can't do that. Well, I guess, I mean, it makes perfect sense in a way. I'm guessing that when you're actually on an op or on a mission, then of course you can't really predict what's going to happen to a degree. So you have to be capable of of adjusting to the circumstances as they present themselves at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Every day, you know, and that's the way it goes. And so that's one of the the, the, the key elements uh, to basic SEAL training is is we're going to make you as uncomfortable as possible in even doing the most simplest task because that's because that's the job. You know? yeah. Even though I didn't know what the job was yet, I had no idea what we were doing, but I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> and so when you... When he got through um, the the initial butts uh, training part, what, what happens next? Like once you're through that, well, in in the era that I went through, when he got done, here's here's what's interesting. So he just got done the hardest military training in the world, right? Uh, one of our second phase instructors uh, came in. And he goes, he comes in and we're all excited. We're finally graduating. We're about ready to walk out, get our, get our small little diploma. And then we're off to jump school at Fort Benning. You know, he came in and he's like, well, so you guys are all in here, all happy and all smiles and patting yourselves in the back and thinking you did something cool. He goes, well, you did. He goes, nobody gives a fuck. He goes, the only thing you got was a ticket to show up to a SEAL team. That's all you got. From there, now you're going to perform 
at a level that's 100 times more harder than this. So we go stop sucking each other off, get your stupid diploma, get the fuck out of here, graduate jump school, and get your SEAL team and start performing. And he was right. He was 100% right. You know, once we got to jump school and everything else, we had all the, we had all the confidence in the world, but all the hard work start, started when we got to the SEAL team because there you had to go through, uh, we had to go through elongated medical uh, combat medic training, which was another nine months at Fort Benning, Georgia. And then from there, we went to our SEAL team, we ended up a SEAL team too, and we had to wait for our SEAL tactical training, which basically all the new guys coming to the SEAL teams on the East Coast, which was SEAL Team 248, STV2, um, all had to do kind of like another BUDS for another six months. But you're now you got introduced to other things like mobility training, uh, CQC training, uh, more in-depth fire movement training, comms, uh, uh, more advanced diving, advanced MARops, advanced BBSS. It's kind of like BUDS on steroids. He was still controlled you know, by instructor staff. It was called SEAL Tactical Training. You had to graduate that. Just, just, then they were just as stringent as they were at BUDS. Just because you graduated BUDS doesn't mean shit. You got to be able to perform and not to be able to be a safety risk either. So, you know, you didn't want to get any safety violations. Prove that you had a head on your shoulders and you could do it. So that was another, you know, we're talking nine months middle, another six months of that. So then you get selected to be in a SEAL platoon based on your performance during the SEAL tactical training. And the, you got a lot of guys that didn't get into platoons, you know, because they had to either redo SEAL tactical training or they had to wait for the next cycle, you know, prove themselves by going to uh, different blocks of training with other SEAL platoons and kind of learn. So there's no guarantees ever. That's the big thing about it. There's no guarantees. So then you get in a SEAL platoon, they need a whole year workup and they need to deploy. So by the time I got... By the time I graduated SEAL training in November of 96, uh, November 96, I didn't, my first, our first appointment was to Kosovo in, um, May of 90, of uh, May of 99. That's how long it took. <laughs> and that's the average for like every SEAL. That's, that's the average. You're, you're talking about by the time you, get to buds or by the time you graduate buds, you look at two and a half to three years by the time you even get to deploy with a SEAL team as a full Navy SEAL. So when you got to your first deployment um, and you went on your first mission in Kosovo, did, how, how did the, the training that you'd done up to that point, how did that sort of translate into what's act, what was actually happening in real life? Yeah. yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was the exact way I trained for, you know, but this is your first time doing it, you know. But at that point, it was the first time for most SEALs at that point, because the last SEALs that did any sort of real, you know, combat was in Vietnam. We had a few things during like uh, uh, the Gulf, the Gulf crisis, the, you know, Desert Storm. Guys did a little bit of stuff, but it's only very few. But so this is like the, we're actually doing real, real missions for the first time in a long time as a SEAL platoon. So everyone was kind of like, new but we trust the training that we had and so uh and then we just made the tactics better so every time we went out we, we learned something new and we passed that on it's like hey this is antiquated stuff this is new stuff so and you started like building and then of course from Kosovo, then it was like afghanistan then iraq and iraq afghanistan then all over the place you know but that's usually the way it goes it's like you want to change an so stand up to your procedure you know usually is when seals die and they're like okay that way doesn't work why Boom, boom, boom. Go to the AAR, figure out why we did that. 
how come we did that wrong? How did this die? Was it was it um, operate error or was it actual that tactic was bad? And so, and you just keep developing all these SOPs and you just get better and better and better. That's, I mean, that's, again, you know, that's a really, that's an important factor. Um, and also somewhat mindset related because, you know, when you're, if you, you know, related to photography, for example, especially when you're first starting out and you're learning, let's say, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're trying to get better at, let's say, uh, studio lighting or something, right? It's like, it's the same mindset that can really accelerate your progress dramatically because, you know, you try something, it doesn't work. You go, well, why didn't it work? Let's figure it out. And then you right. try again. And then, you know, some, one of the aspects, you know, you got to work in and something else didn't work. And you go like, okay, well, let's, let's deconstruct the whole thing and figure out why it doesn't work. And so, yeah. you know, you can, you can improve your, your own performance that way. Yeah. Yeah. You got to break it down. You know, it's like, and that's where, especially photography, all your learning comes into play. You know, it could be anything, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta, you know, know your equipment and, and know your digital dark room. It's like you, there's mistakes being made all over the place, you know, or you find one, you're like, okay, let's break it down. Start A, A, B, C, D. All right. Let's start with the camera body. Let's start with all our menu stuff. Okay. Is anything in here that I miss? Boom. Is it on the lens? Boom. It was a downloaded property. It was a software. Okay. Let's dump, dump it in a Photoshop or whatever. Uh, editing program you have it's and you start going through your troubleshooting it's like going through everything okay here's the image here's the edits here's the mode you know you're like okay what's is the size what am I missing you know so it's kind of like you have to do with everything when things starts to go bad photography and it seems like it goes bad a lot because something simple that you missed you know absolutely so, <laughs> in my case it's something simple you know yeah but I remember you know I remember you know, having a very similar experience when when I first got into photography, you know, and I had to figure out what the exposure triangle was. And it's like, what do you mean you've got like yeah. three things that you need to control just to get just to get light onto that damn sensor? <laughs> like, what's that all about? Yeah. 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 And each one of them has a factor to it. You know, you got your aperture, then you get your speed, then you get your sensitivity, and you're like, cool. And once you change one, it changes everything else. You know, and so oh, no man, I used to put those I just put that shit on flash cars, you know, like you know, it's funny. It's like, uh, I'm pretty sure we'll get to this point, but it's stuff like that, that you just gotta, that's where your learning comes into play. I mean, I know we're going to talk about this, but I'll fast forward a little bit. I mean, here I am teaching military free fall, which basically you jump out of the air, you're free fall for, you know, 60 seconds. And then you pull the parachute. I was an instructor. So, I mean, I'm learning this stuff and I'm in the C-130 just going over. Yeah. I got students who are getting ready to jump at it you know, pretty good airplane, 6,000 feet for the first time in their lives. And I'm back here little learning settings. Okay. 1.2, um, okay. It's 400, 800. What's that with the, you know, and they're like, what are you studying? It's like photography, you know, just be, of course I was a video guy too. So I had the video helmet and everything else, the photograph. And then it's like, that see the green, it's like our stick is up. It's like, look at the jump master. And I put him in my jumpsuit, zip it up. All right, let's go <laughs> and get up, go to the ramp cat, and jump out. <laughs> land, pack the parachute, go back, debrief the students, what they did right, dumb, show them the video, everything else, and you go back, pack the parachute, get another uh, another group, go up and do the same thing. <laughs> Just learning little shit all over all over the everything. You know, it's like I know we'll get at this too, but you know, when I'm learning Photoshop, it's like when I first learned it, it's like I learned everything about it. Like every little thing. Because the more I learned about it, there's more shit that can go wrong. And I needed to know everything. And so I think at one, at one point I took the uh, the ACE exam for a CS3, I believe. 
and I passed it like a long time ago. Well, the computer said I passed it. Then I deployed for two years. So who knows where it is and don't really care. Uh, but now that I'm older and we got fast forward to what I was doing, I realized that I didn't really need to know everything. I just needed to know my path and my workflow and I became an expert at it. But I wouldn't have known that workflow unless I knew what everything did. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, my wife oh. always, ex she, uh, she accuses me of what she calls immersion. Because when I get into something and I want to learn about something, I will literally block out everything else and just focus on this one thing. And I will immerse myself into this, this one thing. Um, and that will take over my life for, for a good period of time until I think I, I've learned everything that there is to learn about this one thing. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and then um, I always remember, you know, I, I went to music college, so um, I studied the guitar originally. And one of my, I remember one thing one of my teachers at, at college used to say to me, he goes like, look, you've got to learn everything there is to learn about music theory. Once you've learned everything there is to learn about music theory, you're going to forget all of it and just start playing. And that's, you know, I've, I've always taken the same sort of attitude. It's like, I, I immerse myself into it. Then once I've sort of integrated all of that into my brain, then I can just let go and just do the thing. Yeah. And then, uh, then especially with photography, you're going to pick things out that, that, that are relevant that oh, you absolutely. need in your workflow. Oh, and so there, and then that's, but I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. Like I said, we, I wouldn't have known that unless I literally like immersed it and figured this, figured it out. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. And this is the thing also, you know, the problem is when you get into something new, I just always, you know, I always say this um, about, you know, using YouTube, for instance, as a learning platform, which of course YouTube is, is amazing because there's so much information on there and whatever you want to learn, there is, there's going to be, you know, an array of videos on there, especially yep. with photography, actually. And of course it's super useful. The only problem is when you first get started and you start watching YouTube videos, the problem is that you don't know what you don't know at the beginning. And so, yeah. you know, so it's really easy to just, you know, fall into that trap. It's like, you know, you watch a video about, I don't know, beginner photography, you know, and then the next video you end up with is like, you know, studio lighting portrait photography. And you go, I don't understand any of this. Yeah. You know, because obviously there, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't like a, so for almost like a structured pathway, you know, to, to move from one thing to another. Um, and that's always been, that's always been the, the problem. So I've always found that, if I immer if I just immerse myself into something completely for for some time, then all of all of a sudden these connections start to happening. You know, it's like connections between I don't know between brain cells in your brain. All of a sudden they start to connect, and the whole thing starts to light up, and you go, Ah, now I understand how this works. Duh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're down the rabbit hole, man. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. So, all right. So uh, let's get let's come back to uh, your career as a seal because you spent obviously you spent twenty four years um, in the teams. And um, you know, you started out as an operative, and then or operator even, and then uh, then you went into uh, being a, a a jump instructor, I suppose. Yeah. So so how the SEAL teams works is is supposed to be well in the Navy, it's a it's a rotation five and two five. You got five years of deployments, and then two years of like a shore duty, which basically you don't deploy, but you do you get advanced training, right? So then you go up to get done. There was two years. You go back out for another five years, and that's the rotation. Um, and it's, it's it's that way by design. So most people get in the Navy, you know, they'll, they'll do a school, they'll owe the military like five years, and then by the time they get done, 
they they're going to make sure that they're used at the the most they get the most out of them out of five years and then most people the higher percentage people get out including the SIL teams they'll, they'll get out after five years or six um and so if you collect to stay in they'll do that they'll do the two they'll rest like oh shoot i'm ready to go back in and back in the fight so that's that's the way that rotation went. uh my rotation was uh i got in like 10 years it was mine did 10 years straight uh 96 to 2006 um and then I got my rotation. So my rotation was uh, teach military freefall. Um, I at that point I uh, I had a bunch of jump calls, which is weird because I didn't even like jumping. I didn't. Even, I wouldn't say I was afraid of heights. I was just afraid of falling. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't make like from the from from the outside it doesn't make you a perfect seal. Like you don't like swimming. You don't like jumping. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like yeah. I so anyway. I know, right? Um, so I, I have, I have a lot of the basic quals for jumping, which a lot of guys didn't. I had, uh, I had basic static long shell, got out of jump school. Then I went back to free fall. Uh, then I was a jump master for static line and free fall. So I had like the, uh, the quad factor, you know, of jump skills, which not a lot of guys had, and I didn't even want them. You know, it was just like the fact that, Hey, here's a, I was getting into leadership positions like, well, if you're going to be that, if you're going to be a leader, then, you know, you're going to need to be free fall and static line jump master quality. You're going to need like RSO quality. You're going to need like range balls and shit. So I was like, all right. So I just took all these balls and ended up with that one. And then it was like, well, you need to go teach free fall now. <laughs> I was like, what? So I had to go back out to Arizona and I did advanced military free fall. And then now I'm a, now I'm a jump instructor out there. Uh, but jumping was one of the things that, that I became externally good at fast. It was like a natural talent. Like when I got there, I got accused of having like like hundreds of jumps, like hundreds, like thousands of jumps. That was the way I flew. And I did. It was my first time flying. Like I, I was natural. Basically, I, I was basically the exact what people think of, of the coin term a natural, just a pure natural at it. There's nothing. As soon as I jumped out of the plane, I was like boom, 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 boom. Whole done. Didn't even bat an eye. You know, and Stryker's like, Yeah, do you, you got your D license, don't you? You're just hiding. I'm like, No, I don't know. So I get to choose of having all this stuff. And finally they realize they're looking up data banks and everything. And like, No, this guy's literally has has no freaking jumps. He's better than all of them. Right. But you needed that skill. So if I didn't have that, I think my path would have been a lot different. So when I got graduated uh, basketball with free fall and now you go what's called on the line now you get students for like a year right so uh, uh every class 10 classes you got two students you taught the students and then you do and then i got invited over to our, our advanced course to teach guys that are coming in you know uh because of my flying ability um so then after a year then we got qualified in like uh, uspa stuff you know advanced tandem and all the other uh coaching uh, a demo, all the, all, all the, all the, all the calls. And, uh, and then we had, we had a video debt. So the video debt was interesting. So those guys, I was always envious of because they got to jump all day long and all they did is video students because it's the only way a student's going to learn in free falls by video. They have to see what they're doing wrong. So you can give them hand signals all day, you know, you know, do everything and, you know, the, they're, they don't, they can't see what they're doing. They think they're doing it, but 
they're not. The only way that you do it is you video them. So here's, here's the student, here's the instructor, the video guy is up here. So whatever the instructor does, we counter what the instructor does, whatever the student does, we counter the student and what the instructor does to make sure they stay in frame the whole time. So you got to keep them in frame the whole time. So you get done, you show the video and the instructor will debrief. This is what you did here. Your legs are on here. See how your arm was down like that. And they're like, oh, okay. Then they go back and they'll work on that. But, uh, so that's what I wanted. I wanted to be in there. And of course I got right into there, uh, just cause of my flying ability. And so, but while I was in there, uh, and now it's like a great time. It's like, so you don't have to do, all I had to do is show up, put on my helmet, pack my parachute and jump. That's it. You know, and then instead of jumping like five times a day, now I was jumping eight times a day or sometimes even more, but people failed, uh, uh, test gates. Then you have to go back up again and video them again to make sure those are really important videos because if they fail, you know, then they write and then they get kicked out of the school. And for a lot of, you know, it was a school for army, air force, Marines, all the special forces all across. And if they lost that bill because they failed, then that's a big deal. Right. So, um, and in that time, I just thought how freaking cool it was when you're standing on the ramp, when it opens up and all you see is like the sun coming up, the mountains, the orange, the reds, the vermilions. It's just, it was beautiful, man. And I'm like, dude, somebody should take a picture of this shit, you know, <laughs> you know? And, and then that's what started it right there. I was like, buff. well, I guess I'll have to figure it out. And that, that started the journey right there. You know, I just went home and Googled how to take a, a photograph. That was it. That's what I, that's what I Googled I mean, you're, and started uh, from there. The, the video thing is really quite interesting, actually, because I think, weren't you, you were one of the free fall cameramen on Act of Valor. Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I remember it's like one of the opening sequences where um, they jump out yeah. of the back of the plane and then you see them free fall for a while. Yeah. They, yeah. That was all my work. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, they had a secondary guy there, but I'm like, I don't need you. It was like, just in case I wanted you to be real stuff. But yeah, all the issues exiting, that was all my stuff, you know? So, but you got to keep them in frame, you know, that was a big thing. But it's funny about Active Ballers, none of those guys, those guys, they did like eight jumps and still could barely pull it. They could, they could barely pull off that launch. You know, I'm like, my God, guys, come on. <laughs> but all good, yeah. Yeah, because the interesting thing about that movie was um, all the, the the lead actors are all actual Navy SEALs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You had um, who was that? Uh, you had Sonny. You had Frigga uh, Wyman. You what was the main guy? I forgot, forgot the main guy. Yeah, but they all were. So, yeah, <laughs> this is a great movie. I mean, I've seen it so many times. <laughs> I have to admit, <laughs> I mean, you know, fantastic. That's actually you know that was one of the scenes where I always thought like, well, you know, how do you? Because I started in video when I was a kid, you know, that was the was thing yeah. that I did. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, watching that, in particular, that particular scene, I was thinking, like, how the hell, like, how do you, because, I mean, that's, you know, you're the camera operator, you're free-falling too. Like, how the hell do you keep them in shot? Like, how do you how yeah. do you operate a camera? Is it just a helmet camera or do you, are you holding yeah. a camera? Yeah, and that, that was actually a 5D, by right. the way. So, um, yeah, that's that's how you do it. So you have a camera home all my camera looks downstairs, uh, and then, and then, but anyway, it, it mounts. So when you're doing video, we just like HC 96 was on the side, you know, protected. And the top was my Canon 5D and, uh, with a 24 to one, uh, yeah, 24 to one Oh five lens. 
that was my favorite. Sometimes I do like the the fish eye lenses if I want to do some dramatic uh, looks. Uh, but that was my go-to lens. Uh, that one and the uh, when the 14 came out, Canon four, the 14 Prime came out. That was when I got that one. I was like, oh, oh boy, here we go. So those are my two main lenses. Um, and uh, but when you you got to line up, you got to line up your camera and your camera because your video camera's here and your camera's up here. So your eyepiece is like you'll sit there, look at some of the walls, some of like, okay, the video's good now, but how about the camera? It's like, give me the camera right. Okay, the camera's dead on, and then I put stuffing and everything else to just manipulate the camera to go, and then my eyepiece. So everything from here, here, both the video and the and the um, and the camera in frame, and then it was just me flying at that point. And so that's how you do it. And there are only some people now. This I don't know why I get, I, I get asked this question all the time, and I don't. I guess I get it, but people ask me, "Are you Nikon or Canon?" You know, and I'm like. Like I like I sat down and 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 went to the pros and cons of all of all those two and decided the camera. And I was like, no, the camera. The what I started with was a a Canon 30D because number one, it's all I can afford and it was used. Uh, that was a because I was unhappily married at the time with kids, so that means I was broke. So I got so I <laughs> sold like comic books and things like that. Got him. And then I did that. I had a Takina lens. It was one of those wide, like 16 to 20 Takina lens or something like that. And one CF card, a four gig CF card, you know, and the Lexar down, downloader and my Photoshop version was a hacked Photoshop version that I bought on eBay, you know, with the code written on the top of the little disc. <laughs> I, th I think <laughs> we all started like that. Our... Yeah. Was, I don't know. He said, hey, it was Photoshop. I needed it. Yeah. All the research I did, I needed Photoshop, and I went to eBay and bought it and downloaded it, and it worked on that little Dell computer. And that's uh, how I learned, man. And I'd go to Barnes and Noble with my little green notebook. My kids would be off in the in the, in the children's section reading books. I'd go to the photography section, just read books and take notes. Put the book back, grab the kids, leave. <laughs> you know, Google stuff. Uh, my buddy was a big video guy. And he had a subscription to lynda.com. Right. And it was Linda. Right. And uh, he gave me the passcode for that. And then I started kind of like doing tutorials, things like that, and started learning. So um, that's kind of like where it went with that. Let me just say a quick thank you to our sponsor, DVE Store. DVE Store's mission is to help you create better video and provide you with the tools necessary to explore your creativity. If you have any digital video equipment needs, whether that's camera equipment, audio gear or lighting and much more, you can check them out at dvestore.com. Thank you to DVE Store for the high def video. And of course you can find a link to DVE Store in the description. Yeah, so lynda.com was basically, you know, back in the day that sort of comparable to Creative Life or something, you know, or scottkelby.com or something like that, where you could you could actually, you could sort of get into a whole course of of instructional videos, for example, about yeah. a particular topic. Yeah, you know? And that's the thing, is yeah, I had to have a camera first. So what's interesting enough for I tell people, and they have a hard time believing it, but it's the truth. I got to when I first started, when I was I was Googling like photography, everything was digital photography. And anything that I learned about photography or and we're talking the nascent stages of learning something. It always like, well, in your digital dark room, you're going to have to do this. I'm like, what the hell is a digital dark room, man? 
So I started learning what the digital darkroom was and I'm like, it's Photoshop. Is that even a thing? What is that? You know, so then you learn that's like a digital, I'm like, oh, well now I got to learn this crap. But of course, went to eBay, found, you know, Photoshop basics and it was like a four disc thing. And then of course I bought it like three bucks. Of course it was a hacked version as well. Um, but I learned and I had a big notebook and I just sat there every day taking notes, putting notes and note cards, writing notes, learning, learning how to do it to the point where like five months, five or six months went by before I made enough money to buy the camera, the lens, the CF car and the download. Okay. And then I had to get the body plate and everything else to mount it. So I'm like, kind of like this, you know, like this mad scientist drilling this, drilling everything. So you got to get to the bottom plate that you put on a tripod. You got to drill that under the top of your helmet, screw that down. That thing has to stick, you know, then you got your, uh, uh shutter switch. You got to manipulate the wires to go down and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it was kind of, that was a cool learning process, but I learned Photoshop first. And so when I would look at stuff, when I first did like everything, I can look outside and I knew what the histogram would look like just by looking outside. It's like, okay, it's going to look like this because there's my dark and lights and I put like values to it and everything else. And so when I first got the camera, like my opening screen was the screen that had the histogram on it. Cause that's all, that's what I could read, you know? And that's what I knew to how I'm going to get a shot and a bad shot was that. And so that's kind of like going when you beginning this podcast, say, how do you get that? How did you get that? Because I don't look at us. I never looked at a scene like this is cool. I looked at it like, okay, I want it. This is the photograph that I want. This is the scene. I've jumped out of this airplane. I want the ramp in the back. I want this sign, this, I know what's going to look like, you know? And so that's how I learned. So kind of like learn backwards. Yeah. But that's, I mean, again, that's, that's a really, uh, that's a really powerful technique because it's it's basically, you know, deconstructing what you either see in your mind's eye or the scene that you see in front of you, um, or you know, in my case, it was always like I was looking at at other you know ph- uh, photographs and I was trying to figure out how they how they did that, you know. Right. And you look at it and you kind of go, okay, well then you learn how to read light, for example, and then, you know, yeah. once you once you can read light, then then it's it's not that far, you know, a gap to to learning how to create that light for yourself. And, you know, uh, and so I've always found it extremely useful. In fact, you know, years ago, when my daughter was maybe, how old was she? Maybe four or something. Yeah, she might have been four, maybe four and a half. Um, I remember we were at a train station in Germany and we were looking at a movie poster and it was a composite. You know, it was like, it was sort of the Marvel. Oh, actually, maybe it was a DC. Maybe it was like, I can't remember, like one of the Marvel superhero movies or whatever it was. And it was like a, it was a movie poster and all the different superheroes were on there in like an ensemble sort of a thing. And, and I looked at it and I realized that they were all shot separately because you could read the, you could read the, the modifiers and the lighting in, in their eyes, you know, so you kind of see the different catch lights. And yes, and you realize very quickly, they're all different. So they weren't in the same place at the same time, but they were shot in different studios and the whole thing was composited together after the fact. And so, uh, and so my daughter asked me like, oh, "How do you know that?" And so I taught her how to read catch lights and eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then ever since then, she's eleven now. But ever since then, whenever we look at a movie poster or see any, you know, a photograph or a poster or something, she always she looks at it and she goes, "Ah, they weren't in the same place at the same time." Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, "Oh, well done." So you know, she's um, you know, I, I managed to kind of to teach her that same technique right from the beginning, and now she does it all the time. 
So, you know, yeah, course, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. And that's the thing. To, oh, yeah. That's, it's, 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 I guess there's no, there's no right or wrong way to learn something, just learn it how you can learn it. Oh, and the other thing that I really liked about the Canon, uh, uh, was the fact that the exposure compensation was easy to do because I had to turn it all the way on. And when I did my bike switch, the shutter release, now I know when I'm skydiving down, going 120 miles out toward the earth, I know that I can reach my hand up and open it up or close uh, the aperture with the roll wow. dial. Oh, wow. Okay. So you actually, you were, you were free falling no. and changing the aperture on your camera at the same time. Yeah. That's mounted on your head. That's incredible. Yeah, man. because when you're when you're standing here in the ramp, well, it's dark inside the ramp. That's like a 1.8, right? Yeah. And then as soon as your student goes out, because I'd like be in front of them and I just fall back and, and watch them exit the air, aircraft. Now as aircraft goes away, now you're getting light. Now you're like at a, a at 8.0 or, or, or 10 or 11, you know, and now you're like shit. And then you're following them down and now you're switching you're flying up and now you're looking down and so now it goes to about a five six right so you're going through three or four exposures all the way in this one jump so i can't compensate for all of them but the some of them i can so i would also have it on shutter priority you know it's like because if we did that things would be blurry so i kept it on shutter priority which really gave some really unique uh lighting you know, especially when I've got it mostly set for like 500. I had this, my shutter set for like, uh, like 500, you know, had my ISO at 400, you know, and I'm typically at a five, six with that. But if I'm standing on the ramp, I know I can go down to like a, you know, depending on the lens, you open it wide, as wide as it can go. Got that shot. And as soon as I transition, I can like bite it down and go one, two, three, one, two. And then I know it was back to a five, six. And yeah. so, so that was ill. That was why I could do that. That that so that was the unique feature of the yeah. of the camp that that I really liked. So for, for the shutter, uh, did you have like a cable release or something, or did you literally? Yeah, it was a cable release. Yeah. yeah, it was cable release. And photography started going really, started hitting the drop zones across the country, and so now the skydiving community started making um, shutter releases. Started oh, right. making gold number plates specifically for your camera, and they made called bite switches. So they went to the side of the camera. You drilled a hole through your uh, helmet and it went down and you wired it all the way through the padding and picked into your mouth and bit down. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a awesome. bite switch. Yeah. 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 You can look at it. It's like bite, like, you know, skydiving bite switch for camera, you know, and then you see these little yeah. switches, you bite them. But I ended up buying a ton of those because you're biting down so much, you know, that you go through them and they're just, they're really pissed poor made. Like I, my bite switches... That would suck the worst is like they go out on you a lot, but you know, that's still the tools of the trade. But um, yeah. I guess they weren't really counting on somebody jumping out of a plane eight times a day. No. No, no, <laughs> no they weren't. You know? <laughs> so. so, so um, I mean, you you know, so the interesting thing I think is, is that, you know, you, you went from, you know, becoming a Navy SEAL, um, having a 24 year career, and then teaching yourself photography to become mm-hmm. an award-winning photographer, which which in itself is is absolutely incredible, <laughs> you know. Again, I mean, that's you know, it's uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, you know, it just photography is a thing. But you know, you, you immerse myself in it. But I, I you know, never half-ass anything. If you're gonna, if like in my mind, if I'm gonna spend this kind of money, I better do it right. You know, 
and uh you know but there's always learning but uh the big thing is Zyda is you know with my child photography you know it's like i'm kind of like it's been a unique path but you know i don't have a studio you know um i don't have a lot of camera equipment anymore i barely take photos now um i had some really good clients i had some big ones i had like nike i did a big big photo shoots for them and uh, uh, I did uh, a lot of the military route and really embraced what I was doing, like Active Valor and things like that. Like SEAL Team wanted a bunch, the CBS SEAL Team wanted a bunch of my stuff. Um, but when I photographed our SEAL train, when I asked you that, uh, when you look through Uncommon Grit, when you look through it, you know, just like you said, it's like, how in the hell did you get that shot? You know, and I tell people because I cheated. Well, how'd you cheat? Because I went through buds. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I know, I know the miserable evolutions. I know when guys are about to quit. I know those moments that people break, and that's and I I know I know what's happening. I know for Tarva for well, like any yeah. other Tarvas, I'm the Navy SEALs. Never been through SEAL training. Won't do that. They'll look and observe, and try to find something that they think looks cool. It's like yeah, which is kind of cool. You're watching SEAL training. But I have it in, I know exactly what to photograph, you know, and went right towards it, you know, because so I, I tell people I cheated. <laughs> <laughs> so your book, Uncommon Grit, is, you know, it's probably the most incredible um, collection of photographs I've I've ever seen all in one book. It's essentially, it's sort of a, what would you call it? Like a, it's, it's documenting Navy SEAL training or butts uh, out from yeah. the inside. Which yeah, which is incredible. Yeah, and that's it, w the interesting. It was a big project. It was brought him a couple books. It was the same guy that had this project in mind. And then when I got done with SEAL Team Three, he's like, "Hey, man, I got this project." You know, so I went and talked to the leadership, and they wanted it for like all their training. We're talking like buds for second, third base, and SQT and jumping and everything. And uh, even they was so robust. I'm like, dude, we're not gonna have enough time for all that. But it never got finished. You know, I think it got like maybe a quarter of the way because it was so robust. I mean, it's like, you need to like five photographers, good ones, like actually professionals at different areas. And even then you're probably not going to get everything because like I said, being a Navy SEAL, I know the tactics, I know what they're going to do. I can do all that. It's like that's in, and it's a, it's a different look, you know, just like if any photographers, like let's say they... You know, they're dog lovers and they photograph dogs for like 30 freaking years. And then I walk in, hey, you need to photograph these dogs. I'm like, yeah, all right. It's a dog. Yeah. You know, but dog photographers, they know how to freaking, they're, whew. so it's the same thing. Um, but that's what Uncommon Grid is, right? So yeah. the interesting about that, this book is why it's Uncommon Grit and why it is what it is. It's only the first four weeks of training. That's it. It's one one day all the way until they get done with Hell Week, and that's it, which is four weeks later. So they still have another 22 weeks to go, plus, you know, the SEAL tactical training, which of the year, then get the SEAL teams. Why is that? Because that's 80% of the class is going to quit in those first four weeks. They're going to get, they're going to quit, they're going to get performance dropped, or they're going to get injured. We're talking, you have 160 guys, by the time they get to the end of the fourth week, you may have 25 left or less. And so that's what I really focused on. So I guess I'm a second phase, a little bit third phase, like here and there, like Alaska and stuff like that it was done a full picture. 
So I can do something that that's we don't have like all of it. But I thought this is the one that 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 grab that society gravitates towards. This is the one that people they don't really know how long SEAL training is. They just think that once hell week is over, they're done and they're SEALs. It's like, no, they got a long way to go. And that's only fourth week. You know, but that's the week that that people really test themselves and, and make hard decisions. Either they're gonna quit or not, they can perform or they won't perform. And so that's why it's, you know, uncommon. It's like, you know, out of the ordinary and grit, strength of character. You need all those things in the first four weeks to give you the tool belt to continue all the training. And that's, I guess that's where that's where the maximum of drama is as well, because because yep. you've got it. Oh yeah. You know, because you're you're photographing I mean you're capturing not only, you know, the physical um, you know, strenuousness of it, but, but also you know, the emotional involvement, like when somebody, I guess, you know, when somebody puts themselves, I mean, just imagine, you know, if you put yourself through, through that, you know, through that training and everything, making the decision to quit, it's got to be one of the toughest decisions you've ever made up to that point in your life. Yeah. I think for a lot of guys, you know, it really was, you know, I mean, you know, there like things happen in training that they weren't expecting, or you, like I said, the environment changes. And I, I think the most part is the environment. You know, them being cold all the time and the environment changes. And that they're physically, all of them are physically fit to be there, period. You know, and, and I'm talking to guys that are quitting and I'm like, what? It's like, what's the difference between you sitting right here in front of me with the sign shit saying you verbally dropped on request? What's the difference between you and the guy that's still out there right now underneath the boat in the freezing ocean, freezing for now? So what's the difference between him and you? You know, and they just look at me and I'm like, there's nothing. Zero. You guys are both. You're both physically. Fit. Oh, you're all physically fit. You're just saying that there's no difference. The difference is, is that guy out there decided that he's going to see how far his potential can go, and you didn't. That's it. You know. So there's. They're all fit. They're all physically fit. There's no one there that's not physically fit. You know. Yeah. But it just comes the mental. The mental stages that they couldn't deal with. You know, and it's like, and that's all the environment changing. It's all it is. I just need it for you. Obviously, having been through that, that just really gave you a unique perspective on uh-huh. yeah. on on that time in the training. Yeah, it's you know it's uh, that reminds me very much of you know when um when I first got into photography, um well sort of you know let's say let's put it this way when I, when I decided to throw myself head over heels into photography, <laughs> um you know I've been a I've been a musician for for twenty five years um I, I spend most of my life on stage, literally since I was a kid. And uh, and the most natural thing for me was to just simply step off the stage and photograph all the things that were happening on stage. I was just like, you know, I started photographing my friends, you know, at gigs and whatever else. And the thing is, you know, I get this all the time. People say, like, what is, you know, concert photography is such a hard thing to do. It's, it's, it's tough, you know, the light's terrible and like people are moving around. It's such a difficult discipline um, in terms of photography, you know. And I, and I always just said, but, but, but for me, it was easy because I'd been in this life for, for over two decades and I know that right. environment. And, you know, when I look at musicians on stage, I very quickly clock how they behave. You know, you've got guitarists that some, some people are just stood still in the same place. Other people run around like crazy across the whole of the stage. And you just have these different personalities. And because I've met them all and I've lived that life for such a long time, you know, it's really easy for me to work out what these personalities were on stage. So for me then to photograph them was actually quite easy because I kind of knew what to expect. Yeah, you know? maybe, yeah, exactly, yep. And so, you know, again, it was, it was a similar thing because I, I totally had the insight 
scoop of what was happening, you know, on on stage. So, so you know, it, it gave me sort of an unfair advantage towards other people who were just, you know, trying their luck at, at photographing the kick. So for you, obviously, you had a unique um, insight into that form of training, and it's it, it meant that you knew exactly where to point the lens um, at any one point. That, that really becomes very obvious in some of the, especially in some of the portraits that you shot, you know, as part of Uncommon Grid. Yeah, some of those portrait shots, like in the book, three of those guys, as soon as they took the picture, they quit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like the ones that are like looking right at you. Yeah, gone. Like that was the last, that was their last moment of buzz. <laughs> and then it was like, man, I'm, I'm starting to creep people out now. It's like they're quitting as soon as I take a picture. So it kind of, it kind of became a running joke. <laughs> yes. It's like, if you take a picture, you're going to quit. <laughs> so, yeah. How long did it take you to, to put all of that together? I had all the photos. The photos took, you know, it was my last year in the Navy. So that was like, one year, 16, probably like start to finish, probably like three years. Oh, wow. So okay. launched it 2019, uh, retired 2007, like January 2018. Uh, pictures were done 2016, like stopped in 17. So I was getting on the Navy. So yeah, it took, uh, I mean, I was, take, I was taking pictures all day long, you know, but then there's the process, okay? So downloading everything, and then, of course, it had to go through, like, the military, like our, you know, PAO, Public Affairs Office, EO, Information Dissemination Office, and things like that. So that took a while to make sure they can actually get released because you can't take photographs on a military base without, you know, they got to be released to make sure nothing is classified or classified or anything else, but... SEAL training, but people most, though, know it's unclassified. It's done right there on public beaches. It's not like anyone doesn't know. You can look up Navy SEAL training and see, like, thousands of videos. So it's not like, you know, people don't know what it is. Um, so that process, and then it was going through all the photos. It's like finding the ones that I want, you know, because when you're photographing that, you don't get to tell somebody to stop you don't get to tell somebody, it's like, hey, I like this angle, go do that evolution again. And it's like, you don't get to do any of that. Sure. You know, you just, you're just there. They're doing their thing, you just shoot. So I would just like, oh, I like this shot. I, I like how they're doing that. And I had that thing on full auto, you know, you know, you know with my, with my 1DX, it's fast to go on a lot of things, you know, and then got to go through. It ended up being like 24,000 photos. All, all shot on camera raw. <laughs> so it was it was the shifting. It was sitting down every day and shifting. Uh, and usually when I got home or did something like that, I'd spend a couple hours just going through them all. Like, okay, like I label ones, this one's good, this one's good. You know, and a whole sequence of 15, but I'd find the two that really hit what I wanted to see. And that process took like a couple years. And then writing is easy because, you know, that was, and then you know getting it printed and then out so it about three years total oh, wow. some of the most um, very striking shots um, in your book are in particular or the ones that I like the most um, are the underwater shots like yeah. there's some incredible <laughs> angles how did you get that did you actually uh, go in the pool yeah I had three cameras My I had two walk arounds which were uh, 5D Mark 3's with 24.5, I had the Quantica underwater housing. 
oh, right. with a 5D Mark II with my 14 millimeter in it. And then my long shot lens where I wanted like have a, some, um, some distance behind me, uh, some distance away, uh, was the, uh, 1DX with sometime mostly like a 400, a 1.2 or a 600. Um, so those were that, but the underwater was the Aquatica housing. And so a lot of stuff in first phase is done at the pool and I'm a pool guy. So I just swam around with them, like go drought proofing. I'd swim, sit at the bottom of the pool, look up, you know, kind of like get those angles that people would never see unless they're literally doing drown proofing in the water with us. And that's the, what I wanted to get. If you look through it, I want you, when you look at this book, you're not looking at photographs. You're, you're, you're in seal training with them right there next to them. You're right there on the boat with them. You're right there on the log with them, you know? So that's the look that I was looking for, you know? And so, um, so the underwater stuff, that was like, I'm sitting right there with them, you know, just go up and down and, you know, swim with them, everything else. <laughs> you know, a lot of this is like a turn, a, a turn of a camera angle, you know, like you're just, just jumping in the water and doing a flip turn to swim 50 meters underwater. You know, sometimes, you know, if you're underwater looking, they're just going to come down, splash, and then go. So you're looking at down, splash, to go. I'm holding my breath. I'm sitting down here at 15 feet looking up, and they're just going down, and then they go. And I'm like, okay, well, if they go down like this, why don't I just turn the camera this way or this way? Now it looks like it comes in from a side, you know? Just It's just just doing one little thing and, and switching it gives it a different perspective. And so people are like, what? I had the one that kind of looks like he's, I don't know, it's somewhere in there. You can see it. it's like, look like he's splashing coming from the side. All that was is I just switched the camera. I'm like, boop. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing how you managed to capture all of these, you know, emotions. It's, again, they're, you know, written uh, all over the faces, you know, in your images. Um, how did, like, what kind of reaction did, did you get within the sort of seal community um because i know i know that you know some some of those sort of movies that have come out for example and stuff like that or book, not necessarily movies but books in particular um maybe not maybe not photo books but I remember wasn't it wasn't it rob o'neill who wrote a book about the um yeah. the uh, bin laden mission and when yeah, that first yeah. came out it wasn't like you know it was a lot of people found it quite tricky to accept that there was a book out about it. How how was your book um, accepted sort of initially in the in the SEAL community? My so. book, you know, it's it's for the most part. I haven't had it, like a lot of seals have it. What I love about the book has been positively positively received across all generations of guys that were seals. We're talking the Vietnam era, World War Two, uh, past, present, and future. Um, I get like, in fact, I, we just signed a book yesterday for, uh, Doug Stone who died 2017. You know, I got, I, I get inquiries all the time. People bought books because their dad was UDT, you know, or their dad was a seal. And I get these lots of, 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 of emails back, like tons of them saying, you know, this dad, this book made my dad cry. Because he always tried to tell us what he went through, but never, never was it how he can finally show him, you know? And now that's the majority of it is, it, it, you know, guys going through butch training, 
uh, love it, guys. Previous guys love it. You know, it, it's just it, it's photographed. It's like you're doing something extraordinary. And you know, when you graduate SEAL training, people just know it's hard. That was it. You know, and now you're a Navy SEAL. But the actual have photographed of it, it changes people's perspective. Now their family members understand. And that's that was gratifying the most. It was the fact that, you know, we have previous generations of of SEALs that that truly, you know, like thank you, like would would email me and thank me for doing it. Like, thanks for doing that. I'd like I, you don't know they'll tell me like they don't know what a relief it was to actually show their family for the first time what they actually went through, you know? It, and it's shocking. You know, there's like a family was shocked. They didn't understand. They're like, whoa, you know? So um, that's the most gratifying thing. And it's also, I haven't, found, I haven't found anyone that said they didn't like it. Like nobody, like you zero. Know, you know, for, from my perspective, like for, if, you know, for somebody who, who doesn't have a military background, you know, um, it's, it's super interesting and fascinating to get an insight into, you know, into what the people that, that we owe our freedoms to, you know, uh -huh. what, you know, what were they put themselves through in order to do the job that they, that they do. And let's say this, you know, I said, because I, I grew up in Germany. Um, and of course, yeah. if it hadn't been for, you know, the men and women that, that, you know, put themselves through that, um, in, in the second world war, then, you know, I wouldn't have been able to grow up in, you know, in a, in a free democracy as, as I have, you know, so, you know, I'll, I'll be eternally grateful for that in a sense. And, it's it's super fascinating to just get. It's like a behind the scenes thing where you yeah. you get like a very unique insight into something that either, as you said, you know, you kind of you know, well, yeah, okay, SEAL training is, you know, or, or special forces training generally is it's tough, you know, you accept that, but you don't really understand how tough it really is mm -hmm. when you're not yeah. in it. You know, even when you're looking at videos, you're like, oh. Okay, they're running with a log, you know, or something like that. It's like, no, when you actually, that's what I love about photography because Darby just captures, you know, you know, those moments of, of, you know, of, you know, of, 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 of grit, you know, of just people doing extraordinary things. Pam Stuckerberg asked me to ask you a question, right? So she wants to know what's new for yes. you in 2013, 2013, it's 2023. I just thought that again. Yeah, 2023. <laughs> yeah, I'm finally, I finally get to talk about my journey, which I'm excited about. Um, I get invited to do, for the first time, some like motivational public speaker, uh, things like that, but never really got to talk about my photography journey. And so uh, I got asked to do a, uh, a photo conference in Dallas last year. And I just kind of like threw all my stuff together and it was like 900 people and man, they loved it. It was like, it was a cool thing. but. It was the first time I'm on stage talking that I really loved it, talking about the journey of, that I was. Because that's what's fun about photographers is like, no matter what stage you are in your life, no matter what you've done in your life, we all experience the same heartaches in photography, every one of us. Not, none of us breeze through it like it was, that like it was, you know, there was no naturals in photography. There's no people that just picked it up and oh look at me I'm now an Ansel Adams I was like no none of you guys did that we all suffered through Photoshop we all suffered through uh, download we all suffered through freaking uh, um, printing we suffered through an alt ship key that was supposed to do something on Photoshop and it didn't you didn't understand why you know everything we've all that's the beauty of what this conference is like 
you know, it's like, well, you're a Navy SEAL. This is cool. It's like, yeah, I struggle with the rest of you. And it humanizes all of us together. It's like, no, we're all in the same boat, man. We just, we, all of our paths, when it came to photographer, yeah, we're different, live different lives, but every path was the same. And you know how you broke off to do your own thing, but, but we all started out same heartaches as everybody else. No one had anything different than anybody else. We all suffered through it. And that's what I loved about it. So it's very humanizing. And so now I'm going to do it. And, uh, uh, Pam's, Pam Sumidor has been one of my biggest fans. And so we've decided to team up and do a conference, you know, um, out in Oklahoma for the first time on June 2nd, like a big conference where I actually get to talk from start to finish about everything that happened in the SEAL team, the photography. And that's what I'm really excited about. I'm really excited to, uh, I hope this journey continues with that because just talking about it is very fun. That's actually what I enjoy the most. Hey, I got to photograph something that, that no, no one SEAL has ever done before. I know it's been photographed a couple times, but by other photographers, but not like I got to do it. So I guess I was kind of spoiled with that, but you know, doing commercial work and things like that, it was like, you know, it wasn't me, but so I just spoke on to do graphic art and things like that. And, 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 uh, um, and public speaking and, and things like that. So it was a lot more fun. It's a unique journey and I can identify with a lot of people in that path, but they get to see a lot of cool things. So, um, I'm excited about that. I really am. And I hope it really works and goes out. So, so that's going to be on the 2nd of June at, uh, in Broken Arrow, yeah, Oklahoma. At, yeah. Right there in Oklahoma. So, uh, we'll have, uh, the website up. I uh, mean, Pam's working on it now. We're going to do the big marketing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show. It's super interesting talking to you, um, of course. And you know, your book, Uncommon Grit, is absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it to anybody who's who's into photography, um, yeah. especially into photo books. I love photo books. I'll tell you, I, you know. Yeah, it's great. It's a great just photo book, man. But hey, thanks for having me on there. I mean, I'm, you know, congratulations to Normandy for success with these. And man, it's like, it was really cool to talk to you. I appreciate it. So thanks for your time and thanks for having me on, man. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so that's it. We have come to the end of Camera Shake Podcast episode 142. And uh, let me just say, remember that uh, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, remember that there's a fully fleshed, fully technicolored version over on YouTube. So if you want to see some of Darren's work, um, then you know, head over to YouTube and check it out there. Um, that being said, you know, send us a message. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We've all on Facebook group. You know, come and say hello on there. Um, say hello, send us a message. We love hearing from you. And uh, that's it. That's Camera Shake Podcast, episode 142. Over and out. See you next Thursday. Bye.